Hear the word of God from Joel chapter 2, verses 21 through 27. These readings come from the Common English Bible. You can find this reading on page 70, 741 in the Pew Bible. Don't fear, fertile land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord is about to do great things. Don't be afraid, animals of the field, for the meadows of the wilderness will turn green, the tree will bear its fruit. The fig tree and the grapevine will yield their full yield. Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he will give you the early rain as a sign of righteousness. He will pour down abundant rain for you, the early and the late rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. I will repay you for the years that the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locusts, and the devouring locusts have eaten, my great army which I sent against you. You will eat abundantly and be satisfied, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has done wonders for you. And my people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. No other exists. Never again will my people be put to shame. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. The 1976 film Network contains one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. One of the characters is Howard Beale. He is an accomplished television news broadcaster. And in that scene, he had just about had enough of sharing one bad news headline after another. And so, with rain pouring down on him and his khaki raincoat clinging to his skin and the, the water from the raindrops making his hair mat against his head, he stared into the camera, took the microphone, and said these words to his television news audience. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, gosh darn it, my life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm mad as heck, and I'm not going to take this anymore. <laughs> now, I, I would have shown you the original clip, except he doesn't say, gosh darn it, <laughs> and, he, and he doesn't say heck. But as we heard these words from Joel, I wonder how many of us could resonate with a little bit of Howard Beale in our lives. Maybe you feel this way now. Maybe you feel like you're at the end of your rope. Maybe you feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel, that you are rock bottom. Maybe some of you feel that way right now with whatever's happening in your life. Maybe, if we acknowledge it, we are all feeling it as a community of people, as a human global community with all the bad news headlines that seem to be sweeping over us day after day after day. For any part of us that feels like opening up the window of our souls and yelling out to anyone who would hear it, I am mad as heck, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Well, Joel would agree. The prophet Joel, who wrote centuries before Jesus, there in the Old Testament, spoke to the Israelite people with a kind of Howard Beale frustration, 
But something amazing happens in this book of Joel. Somehow he's able to move from that, that anger and frustration that he channels for everyone and eventually makes it to a place of, of all things, gratitude and expectation and hope. And so for any one of us this morning who feels like Howard Beale, wouldn't it be nice if we could make that same shift in our lives today? Well, as a matter of fact, He does. He offers us not only a word of gratitude, but a remarkable word of gratitude. No, Joel doesn't use the exact same words as Howard Beale, but he comes close. In the very first chapter of his book, this is what he says to the Israelite people. He says, To you, Lord, I cry, for fire has completely destroyed the pastures of the wilderness, and flames have burnt all the trees of the field. Even the field's wild animals cry to you because the streams have dried up. The fire has completely destroyed the meadows of the wilderness. This is Joel acting like a television news anchor man screaming out to the Israelites, to a people who feel like their world has fallen apart. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong for the Israelite people. A a foreign army was sweeping through, about to decimate them. Worst of all, they felt like God had abandoned them. And everything they thought they knew about God was being called into question. And everything they thought was reliable in their lives was being filled with doubt. It was almost as if the people were walking on shifting tectonic plates beneath them, that everything they thought they knew and could trust and believe in was shifting underneath their feet. Their lives were filled with fear, anxiety, and uncertainty. And I suspect it wouldn't take much to try to connect their world with ours. Our lives seem to be replete with that same level of global uncertainty. And even our world, our society is filled with those same kinds of headlines. We live in a world where, for example, gun violence happens so often that whenever a new shooting happens, we are shocked by how little we are shocked anymore. We live in a time when Young black men don't feel safe to walk in the streets when many women don't feel safe to work in their offices, when the poor among us don't feel able to break through their poverty. We live in a world that seems so much more prone to saber-rattling than peacemaking, and our scientists' warnings about the damage being done to our planet go unheeded. So it is against this backdrop of current events that the prophet Joel bursts onto the scene with his tiny little three-chapter book, and he basically says to us, I am mad as, well, he wouldn't say heck, he'd probably say Sheol, I am as mad as Sheol, and I couldn't take it anymore. Three chapters long, that's as long as his book is. And basically the first half of that book, the first chapter and a half, is him doing his best Howard Beale impression. But then something remarkable happens halfway through the book. Halfway through the second chapter, there is a shift in tone 
Like at the drop of a hat, at a turn of a dime, he goes from anger and frustration and acknowledging reality to all of a sudden offering a word of hope and gratitude and good news. The very beginning of the Scripture passage that Mary Lou just read for you says these words, Do not fear. Rejoice in the Lord. I am the Lord your God, Joel says. And I want to suggest to you that if there is any part of you this morning that is feeling fed up, mad as heck, and unable to take it anymore, God can help you move to a different way of living today. And Joel gives us some words of advice. And surprise, surprise, he gives us three points. Point number one, move from fear to gratitude. Now, that might surprise you to talk about fear instead of anger, but remember, like I said about a month ago in my sermon on anger, anger is usually sourced in two primary different foundations. One is our fear, and the other is our powerlessness. So if you're feeling anger today about something in your life or in the world, ask yourself the question, what is it that you're afraid of and what is it that you feel helpless to fight against? And if you're feeling fear, then Joel is pretty clear, you counter your fears with gratitude. You counter fear with gratitude. Now, you might not always associate those two words, but I think it's pretty clear that what gratitude does for us is it encourages us to slow down, to push the pause button, to take a breath. Fear does the other thing. Fear causes our heart to race, for us to fight back and to flee and to run harder, but gratitude causes us to slow down, to take a full inventory of the moment, to begin to notice everything that's in our life that God is blessing us with that we would otherwise miss. Joel says to the people, do not fear, rejoice in the Lord. And then he spends most of the passage pointing out to the people all the little things that God is doing in their midst that they would otherwise miss watching the rain fall, watching the trees bear fruit, watching the wilderness bloom into new hope and new life. And when you learn to notice the little things that God is doing, then your fear begins to dissipate. Fear is countered by gratitude, and gratitude is nourished by patience. That, that Latin word for patience is the same Latin word for suffering. Patience and suffering have the same root, which is to say that if you are suffering in your life today, patience is what will see you through it. Not a quick fix, not a shortcut, but patience born out of gratitude. I love, I love what Teresa of Avila said. The, the great ancient Christian mystic wrote these words, let nothing perturb you, Nothing frighten you. All things pass. God does not change. Patience achieves everything. And if you, if you remember anything else from this sermon this morning, it might be those last three words from Teresa that you might hold on to this week. Patience achieves everything. 
And as you gather this week on Thursday for Thanksgiving Day with family and friends around the table, let this be an invitation for you to push the pause button. We know how crazy and hectic life is right now for so many of us, how frazzled we feel with the conditions of our lives. Let Thanksgiving, let this Thursday put you on a new trajectory toward gratitude that you can carry all year round as you push the pause button, take a deep breath, take full inventory of what God is doing in your life, and resolve to be patient in what you're dealing with. That's number one. Move from fear to gratitude. Number two, move from isolation to community. If you're feeling at the end of the rope, the bottom of the barrel, the last straw, then Joel reminds us that we are not isolated individuals. We are called to be in relationships with one another in a broader community. All throughout the Scripture reading, he addresses his audience in the corporate, in the communal. He calls them children of God. He calls them people of Israel. He calls them people of God. He's not talking to individual people. He's reminding them that no matter what is going on in their lives, it is better for them to be together. Because the moment you move from isolation to community, you can experience gratitude and not fear and you can experience true happiness. If I were to ask you the question, uh, what country in the world do you think contains the happiest people on earth, I wonder what your response or your guess might be. According to Dutch researcher Ruth Veenhoven, the answer might surprise you. The happiest people in the world do not live in the United States. That may not surprise you at all. <laughs> they don't live in the Caribbean. They don't live in Italy or in a country in Africa or South America or Australia. The happiest people, according to something called the World Database of Happiness, there is such a thing, the happiest people in the world live in Iceland. Iceland, really. Cold, dark, frigid, frozen Iceland. And here's the theory as to why. Climate does not dictate happiness. That's the theory here. In other words, warm sunshine or sunny beaches do not make people happy. Not a booming economy, not a mighty military. The thing that makes people happy is a sense of community, community. The, the technical label for this theory is the, quote, get along with each other or die theory. <laughs> because in warmer places and warmer climates, it is possible potentially for you to get by on your own. If you're hungry, if you're starving, then just wait, for example, for like a coconut to fall from a palm tree. There's food everywhere. But in colder climates, you have to depend on one another. Where the weather is fierce and threatening, you need each other to survive. 
And it is that sense of community. It is that sense of interdependence on one another and that acknowledgement that you need each other that actually breeds more happiness. In colder places, cooperation is mandatory. Everyone has to work together to stay warm and to ensure a good harvest and to bring in a bunch of fish. And if you don't, people die together. Now, I think we saw some of that get along with each other or die theory here. Just this past fall, this past year during Hurricane Irma, remember? When we needed each other to depend on each other as these threats were upon us, it is the recognition that we need each other to survive, that isolation and tribalism do not create happiness. They only stoke fear and anger and jealousy. Rugged individualism, as much as it might make us feel good about ourselves and our accomplishments, they cannot fight anger or fear. And that is why we need the church. That's why God has put this church in this community. And that's why today it is so heartening to see so many people wearing their red t-shirts. Today is not a Target employee celebration luncheon. <laughs> today. That's not in my manuscript. That just came from... Today, hundreds of us will be going over to the holiday tent at Metropolitan Ministries because we believe in the interdependence of community. We believe that we do better when we are together strengthening our relationships, not just within ourselves as a church, but with others out there in the community. And so as we're out there serving people who are in need, we will not only be a blessing to them, but we will receive a blessing in return, and that's the way it should work. That's why the church exists to break through tribalism, to cut down on the categories, to burst through the divides, and to move us from isolation to community. That is the way to foster gratitude over fear and anger. Third, finally, move from scarcity to abundance. Move from a mentality of scarcity to a mentality of abundance. Many people base their entire lives, their whole lives, with a mentality of scarcity, with a belief that there isn't enough out there for everyone, so I better get what's mine while I can. More achievement, more, more money, more, more prestige, more possessions. They, they see the world as being comprised of one giant pie, and the more slice of a pie other people get, that means there is less for me. And you know what that breeds, fear, jealousy, anger. We see it in almost every aspect of our lives. Now, I will admit to you that I'm not an economist. I'm not a sociologist. All I am is a preacher. But what I know is this. It's that theologically speaking, biblically speaking, God has never, ever operated out of a mentality of scarcity only out of a mentality of abundance. Because in God, everyone has enough. 
if everyone will simply choose love and compassion and generosity. When your program staff earlier this year went on a conference, one of the speakers at this conference was a man named Eric Law. He's a church consultant who works with churches to help them develop fresh ideas for health and vitality. And for me, one of the highlights of this trip was an exercise that Eric Law did with the two or three hundred of us that were gathered in this room. He took a a large stack of plain, ordinary-looking cards, and he said that these cards represent all of the resources that were available to us. And then he divided that big stack into seven smaller stacks and gave them to seven people in the room. Two or three hundred of us, but only seven people had all the resources. And then he asked a question. He said, what if, what if we practiced radical compassion and generosity with each other? What, what if, for the next several minutes, If you see someone who has fewer cards than you do, what if you gave them enough of your cards to where they then had more cards than you? So then he said, go. And we all got up. And for the first minute or so, I stood there, cardless, awkward, a little bit isolated. And then eventually, somebody came to me, and she had a nice-sized sum of cards and noticed that I didn't have any. So she gave me more than half of her cards. And I stood there with those cards in my hand and thought I had just won the mega millions of ordinary cards. (laughs) And for a moment, I will admit to you, for a moment it felt good to have them And it was tempting to hold on to them until I looked at the person next to me who didn't have a single card in their hands. And then I remembered the principle of the exercise. So I gave that next person more than half of mine. And then she then turned to the person next to them and gave cards to the next person and the next. And eventually, people were giving me their cards, and I was in turn giving them their cards. And an exercise that started out for the first minute with a lot of awkward silence and standing around, after a few minutes, just a few minutes, the entire room burst into energy and excitement and laughter and smiles and humor as these resources that were once coerced by just a handful of people began to flow all throughout the room. And when Eric Locke called time, we recognized immediately what had happened. We had moved from a mentality of scarcity to a mentality of abundance, and that is how God works. Out of a spirit of abundance, not scarcity. That's how, after all, just a handful of bread and fish could be transformed to feed a multitude. That's how a few drops of oil could feed a poor widow and her son for months in the story of Elijah. That's how a handful of frightened disciples 
could be touched by the Spirit at the moment of Pentecost and be transformed and multiplied into thousands of new people who came to know Jesus. That's the way God works over and over and over again. That a little can turn into a lot when God's people operate out of abundance and not scarcity. And that is why stewardship matters. Today is Commitment Sunday. Today is an opportunity for you to turn in your pledge card if you haven't done so. We're grateful for, for hundreds of you who already have. And if you haven't, I want to let you know that the motivation for turning in a pledge card is never out of guilt. We, we do not operate out of guilt around here or coercion or out of obligation. This text from Joel invites you to turn in a pledge card simply out of gratitude, out of community, and out of a sense that there is always enough when God's people share. If you haven't turned in a pledge card yet, we invite you to do that during the offertory as the offering plates pass by. If you don't have a pledge card, there's one right in your pew rack. You can fill it out. Or you can do it online, even right now, safely, securely, quickly, by turning one in. This, this is the counter to the Howard Beale that is inside each one of us, mad as heck and can't take it anymore. When we move from fear to gratitude, when we move from isolation to community, and when we move from a mentality of scarcity to a theology of abundance. And what will happen when we practice these three things is that these final words from Joel will come to life for us as he closes the Scripture reading by saying, you will eat abundantly and be satisfied, and you will praise the name of the Lord, your God, who has done wonders for you. And my people, my people, will never again be put to shame. May it be so. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the compelling and challenging words of Joel and how timely they are for any of us who are dealing with anger, anxiety, and fear in our lives or in the world. We know this is not your desire for your people to live this way, but instead to live out your kingdom and be part of making this world better. So move us, O oh God, out of fear into gratitude, out of individualism and into relationships with one another and out of a feeling like there is not enough into a heart and into a mindset that believes that you already have given us all that we need. Teach us to share. Teach us to love. Teach us to be your people. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, and let all God's people say, Amen. So now is time for the offertory. We invite you to prepare not only your tithes and your offerings, but to place your pledge cards in there, as well as any prayer concerns and joys that you might have. So at this time, we invite the ushers to come forward. <clears throat>